A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I have with me today a great guest. I have Dr. Wanda Wallace. Wanda, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. So I don't want to give away too many things. Wanda's a a fellow radio show host who I've gotten to know over time and um, really has a pretty incredible background and backstory and does some pretty incredible work for her clients. And so as we do with all our our guests, let's let's move through that. Let's talk about how you are not just not just have transformed yourself, but how you transform others. So Wanda, we always start with your story, right? And so going back to the very, very beginning, whatever beginning you want to define, um, could you share your story with, with us on how you become an expert? And then we'll talk about what you're actually, what you're actually an expert at. Okay, great. Um, You know, I am a psychologist by training. And so you find in that one that the truth of what really forms us starts in our early childhood, whether we like to talk about it or not. And I'm not going to bore you with all my childhood details, but I will tell you, I came from a very small farming community where there were not a lot of opportunities nor were there a lot of opportunities for smart women. So needless to say, education became my route forward, as I think it has for a lot of people. So it shouldn't surprise anybody to know that I then went on to become a PhD in psychology because I've been fascinated with how people make sense of their world my entire lifetime. That led to a research position, which led to a faculty position in the marketing department at a business school. And I was teaching traditional marketing, loving it, having great time, doing a fabulous job. And we reorganized our curriculum to do these integrated learning experiences. And the first one was on team building and leadership. And it happened that as an undergraduate, I had spent four years with outdoor education, a thing I was passionate about at the time. So I put my hand up as a very junior faculty member to say, I'd like to be involved now you can imagine back to the 1990s, not very many people knew much about team and leadership. No. So suddenly I'm a junior faculty member running this massive program for our entire MBA class. And suddenly my marketing days were done and the rest is really history. So I then moved to run executive education, which meant I had a boss, a board, a PL, a staff, um, I ran a business basically. And from there, um, I ultimately decided I had enough of academics and I started a piece of research on why women were leaving the top jobs and get there and not stick. And that yet again, transformed my life. I never expected to be doing the coaching that I'm doing today. Uh, but that happened because coming out of that research, suddenly I had a point of view and a perspective and experiences. And here we go to today. Okay, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, big, huge research project back then on why women leave. I'd, I'd love to know your thinking. I mean, why were they leaving back then? What, what were the primary causes? And what, if anything's changed today? Uh, sadly, not much has changed, Chris. But at the time, I identified five factors that were working for or against women. One had to do with the quality of the relationships. Do they have the breadth of the network? Do they have the sponsorship, mentorship, et cetera? Same problem we still have today. 
Second one had to do with credibility, um, a big force of my focus at the moment, which is we are not getting women into the jobs that give them credibility to lead at the top. We put them in functional operational roles. Um, third thing is they were not getting the feedback they needed in order to know how to advance that is tightly tied to the first and the second. Fourth, I'm going to even forget what my fourth, oh, women get themselves quite isolated because they don't have close friends. It's hard to find a friend. All sorts of complications around that. And then the last piece um, is authenticity. It was a bad choice of words at the time, but it really has to do with when I'm different than everybody around me, how am I supposed to do things? I can't look and role model if I'm going to have a fight with a colleague or I'm going to stand up for something I believe or I'm going to push back, who do I watch? There's no one out there to watch that's enough like me. And so finding that sense of how do I do some of these things, I just think is harder for women and for other minorities too. And do you so think, those are factors. They haven't changed. So, not one bit. So some the, so on authenticity, I actually want to touch on some of these. I, the, on the authenticity piece, is it that they feel like they can't be their authentic self, so they, they have to look like somebody else? Do they have to, you know, we, we hear stories all the time of people modeling behaviors in order to, to, to fit in and sometimes to a detriment. I mean, I've got a live yeah. example right now of, of somebody who tried to do that in a company and yeah. it, it has not worked out for them. Yeah. It's, um, I think this is a two-sided story and I think it's much harder than a yes-no answer to that, Chris. So if I don't fit within the culture of the organization, and by that I mean the general way things happen around here, I'm going to get it rejected by the organization. So that's just reality. I don't care who you are, where you're coming from, where you're working. At the same time, if I'm not, if I'm trying to pretend to be somebody else, I'm going to be a bad version of somebody else. Mm-hmm. So marrying those two up, so that I have enough of the cultural fit so that there is comfort with me, a willingness to embrace me and retaining enough of me and my uniqueness is the magic. Now, how much overlap do we get there? And one of the things that I find is frequently women and others, other minorities, try to do way too much overlap. Uh So they lose any of the uniqueness. But at the same time, you can't have zero overlap either. So what my original research found is that there was not as fine of a rope as people thought, that they had more freedom than they thought, but it's not infinite freedom either. That's interesting. And, you know, also within those scenarios, what happens to the stress levels of somebody who's in that situation? Anytime you're isolated, it's terrible. I mean, anytime you look around and say, I don't know if I can say that, how to say that, um, I don't know if what I'm wearing is okay or not. I mean, none of those factors are out there readily available if I'm from a minority underrepresented group. I'll give you an example um, with a client that I'm dealing with right at the moment. So an Asian population, let's say, and this happens to be a U.S.-based client, global business, but it's U.S.-based headquarters. Asian, your entire life for many Asians is you're taught to show deference, to not show conference, to show humility, to not speak up, to wait to be asked. Okay, now we put that same person into a current Western headquartered company and they're expected to have confidence, executive presence, speak up, be loud, interrupt. 
they struggle and they need somebody who's like them to say, how, how do I think about this? How do I go about doing it? What did you do? How do I do it? And the average Westerner who says, oh, just, you know, show up and speak up isn't going to be helpful. Yeah, it's it, it, it's funny, but sometimes, you know, advice is given from different people's comfort zones without, con- you know, without the concept of what another person's comfort zone is, you know, and, and yes. I've seen that mm-hmm. the, the, the Asian culture example is a good one. I mean, we used to work with a lot of Japanese, um, we had Japanese franchisees and, and I used to go quite a bit. And I remember as at the headquarters, of this one um, Japanese franchise, and we had a, a room full of, of people and I was getting people's opinions and, you know, off on the side was, was, was a young lady and she hadn't said anything. And I called on her. Mm-hmm. And after the meeting, the president of the company pulled me aside and said, you know, we don't do that here. I said, yeah, we don't do what here? <laughs> well, yeah. one, we don't call on people. <laughs> but yeah. um, I, I, I kind of, I think I reeducated that on real quick because I don't change my behavior so easily for him. <laughs> but the other part is, is, is that he said, well, we don't, we don't call on women here. And I said, hmm, what percentage of your organization is women? And when you looked at the roles, they had at that time, you know, if you think about, you know, a, a series of restaurants in a con- country, I mean, they had a, they had more women in the company, many, many more women in the company than men, mm-hmm. but there were no women in any managerial positions. And they were, I mean, they were really, really missing out. And, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I got them to, to waver a little bit. The, they, the CEO of the whole company was very um, progressive um, and for at, at that time, I'm in the early nineties, late eighties, early nineties for a, you know, Japanese owned Japanese based company, um, an owner that at that time, a CEO who was well in, in his seventies, I believe to be progressive was, was not a common thing in Japan. And, yeah. um, I remember that in a side conversation and I made a lot of the middle managers sweat, but because the CEO was nodding and agreeing with me, they, they couldn't say anything. And we talked about how they had stores and locations where all the customers were women bringing in their children during the day, all the servers were women, et cetera. And the only real man in the whole thing was the guy who was the manager of the store. And I said, well, let's try a woman as a manager. Mm-hmm. And it was such a shock to the system. And five years later, all of a sudden, you know, they had women managers across all their, not all their yeah. stores, but across all their divisions. And, and it really changed. And I can remember a conversation with the president who was under him saying, you know, I, I was really hesitant and we know that you Americans do things different. And he said, but this has been a real benefit for us. I mean, we're, we're actually seeing our customers in a whole new light, you know, and, and they were like thankful. Yeah. And again, in, in an era and time when in that particular culture, yeah. And it's just, it's like diversity can really bring a lot to the table if you just open your mind to it. Yeah, you can, but you have to help people understand how do they be themselves true to who they are in our culture. It's the combination of the true that the two that's just dynamic. So how do we, how do we move forward? Right. I mean, if you think about it, so, you know, you mentioned there hasn't been a whole lot of change for women. And I, I bet we could probably make that comment for a lot of the minority groups. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. what, what's the barrier? What's, what's stopping us? You know, I know a lot of people that seem to be very progressive minded, but 
you know, you could still look at their management teams and say, well, I wonder. <laughs> Thinking about it and doing something about it are two very different yes. things, as you just highlighted. Because um, I have a very powerful opinion about this. So you're going to have to give me a moment to get through my whole opinion here. First off, we throw tons of money at diversity programs. I mean, over the years, recruiting, retention, tons of money. There is no other business problem that we would have been tackling for this many decades with such little progress and that much money expended without going back to ask what's the root cause. So the one thing we don't do is say, what's the root cause of the problem? Why are we here today? And so the number one thing I anybody listening is go figure out why you do not have people that you want in various places. And you're going to find the same old age story. Um, A, Sometimes they don't know how to ask, don't know need to ask, don't know who to ask. So that's an education story. Sometimes they don't have the right experiences. All right. How do we get them the right experiences? Um, Sometimes they're lacking the belief that they could do it because nobody's before them has done it. So, okay, that's a tap problem to tackle. Sometimes they're lacking a manager or above a sponsor who's going to take a chance on them to show the organization what they can do. Okay, there's a tactic for that. If we start pulling apart where the problems are, you can approach each one of them, but don't just keep doing what we've always done because it won't get there. So in the answer, Chris, with my clients, I really believe there's a three-pronged effort and where we're having success, we're doing exactly this. One is to get women or others into a cohort And I always use an educational format for doing this where they get bonded with each other and realize they're not alone. And that if that person over there can do it, then so can I. And in that, some education about what it takes to build a career here, about experiences, about how you're perceived, about what do you do about that? Okay. That person then goes back to the organization with a lot more confidence, a little more fire in the belly, Um, make some changes, suddenly managers are going, geez, what did you do and how do I help? Now I pull the managers into how do they continue to foster that, support that, do it, generate it for more people. Okay, we got a win-win now going. And then the third prong is to make sure that the systems and processes, particularly the talent identification promotion processes, are as bias-free as you can get. And that is a forever journey. It, it, it's not like you fix it and done, but you have to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. Yeah. You know, without question. And I think that really that last one in particular does get to a root cause issue because I, you know, I think about this and I have, um, I've seen, I've seen all the different diversity programs and I've seen some really good ones. And quite frankly, I've seen some that aren't so good. And, you know, I've seen organizations try to, to, to do things um, almost to the point of trying to, to force diversity. And, you know, you could, you could put in, let's say, let's call it a forced diversity system where you, you try to hire, you know, people at different percentages and make sure you have balance, but it, it still doesn't solve the core problems. And that's the belief systems and the biases that are in place. And my, my concern is, is until you fix that, Actually, I have a different view on it because we have data, Rob Kaiser and I have published on this one that says that once I get you into the position, 
So you're in a role mm-hmm. and I'm now going to evaluate 360 degrees feedback of in your role and how are people perceiving you in terms of your leadership and your strategic and your operational and all that kind of jazz. We find that there's no bias, but the bias is getting you into the role. So Mm -hmm. my belief is we want to push people to ask for, to take a chance on, to get in a role and then let them deliver and perform. And then we'll push to get to the next one. But if I have a candidate that's not saying I want it, and is not knowing how to advocate for themselves or how to, to take those kind of risks, then they'll forever say, oh, but we don't have the pipeline. You know what? I agree 100% on that. Let's, um, let's take a quick break. So um, we're, we're at that point. Everybody stay tuned. We'll be back in just a minute. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Dr. Wanda Wallace. So Wanda, just before we went to the break, we had started kind of talking a little bit about biases and you know, your, current, um, your current you know research and, and thinking and what you've discovered on it. Um, bias does come into play and biases can change over time. So I'd love to, to know more of your thinking on that and how, how do we work towards eliminating those? Well, I mean, I think the best of research would say is very clear anymore. Our brains are hardwired for bias. It's a shortcut for how we think. And I often like to refer people back to the original psychological research on cognitive bias, how we think, and that has been massively well-documented. I think the last count is there are 67 or 66 some known cognitive biases. So it is in our brains, how we work. We're not going to eliminate it, but we can certainly challenge every process we have to say, where has bias entered in and how do we get it out? All right. So, you know, I'm totally on board with that one. I'm not on board with the notion that I can put you through a bias training program and have you then completely change your bias. No, I might raise your awareness about a bias, but that's that's what I'm going to get out of it. And that's not a bad thing, but let's be clear what we're getting from it. Um, 
at the end of the day, I think about in corporate life, A, who do I give the opportunity to? Like that's the big choice point for me. Because if person A gets a big opportunity and person B gets a smaller opportunity, then person A is going to look like the better candidate in five years because they've delivered more. But we don't stop to say, what opportunity did I give them to start with? Okay, so I I think it's an important one um, and one we have to go back and evaluate. So who do I give the opportunity to? At the end of the day, most hiring managers make a gut call on who they're comfortable with. And you can put whatever language you want and whatever processes you want around that. But at the end of the day, I'm comfortable with A and I'm not comfortable with B. Now, if you really stop and ask, how much do I have in common with A? I think you're gonna find it's shockingly a lot. And gender is but one piece, ethnicity is one piece. There are many others. Turns out also, so is birth order. Firstborns tend to be more comfortable with other firstborns. Wow, what a shock on that. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a bunch of these that we don't even stop to think about. And all I ask is when you're giving the opportunity, would you pause and say, okay, great, I'm comfortable with this person. Why? Is there any evidence that they'll perform a better job? So this, um, this comfort, if you will, and, and these, these kind of decisions that, that someone might be making at, at those points in time, is, is that all happening at a subconscious level? I mean, because it sounds to me like you're saying, you know, pause and make it conscious as opposed to letting things happen subconscious. That's, that's what I'm reading into what you're saying. Yeah. I think that's true. I think it happens at a non-intentional space. Whether I want to relegate that to subconscious or not, okay. I don't know. But we're not intentional about it. Okay, I'll buy that. I, th- I think intent is, is, you know, that's a very, very key point. It's a lot about what we talk about. You also mentioned that, um, you know, one of the, the five parts of, of your research, that feedback and a lack of feedback was an issue. And it's actually, I, it's a common thing that I hear today a lot in my clients, and, and I'm sure you're hearing it as well, people in general are saying they're not getting good feedback. Um, you know, yeah. what, what's, what are your recommending, what, do you, what are your recommendations for being better at giving feedback and actually establishing a strong feedback loop, you know, that, that can help us work better together? Yeah, I spend a ton of time on this. You would not believe, Chris. Like, I I give you an example. Just last week, I'm talking with one of my clients. We're working on a big deal about how to build a more inclusive culture with them. Very excited about the progress, all positive things. But I'm sitting down with some managers, and we're talking about some of their talent and saying, well, what's the big issue here? And they are very articulate about what the big issue is. And then I say, have you told them? Well, not really. Like, Step one, I, and the managers come back with, I don't really know how to tell them. I don't want to demotivate them. I don't know how to say the words. I don't know, you know. So you got to give the message because you're not even giving anybody a chance to improve if you don't get the message. So that's step one. But step two, one of my pet peeves is people will say things like, oh, geez, Chris, I need you to be more strategic. Or Chris, I need you to have better executive presence. Okay. I need you to play better with others. Okay. Yeah. What does that mean? What do I do about it? And until we stop to say, what is it you are doing that's leading to the conclusion that you are not blank, 
then there is no feedback that's actionable. And I think what everyone, everyone is saying is give me that behavioral thing I'm doing so I can take action on it. Yeah, I love those examples. You just made me chuckle a little bit because because I sometimes think I, I, I this is a, maybe a bit of a conspiracy theory that somewhere there's some invisible book that that only a few people have, and it's it's like how to give a, how to give lousy feedback, how to avoid conflict, how to you know, and and you know here here are all the buzzword comments that you should say in a feedback session, and then you can get out of it and not worry about it. Um, <laughs> The power of specific feedback, the, the, the power of being specific, being clear, but it does require some forethought and it requires some planning. I mean, how can I give you clear feedback if I haven't started the process with helping you understand my expectations, right? Yeah. And the expectations for the role and how we're measuring, et cetera. It, it just, and it, it'll simplify things, but there seems to be this avoidance of doing it and I don't understand what's behind it. I don't think people actually understand how to diagnose what's going wrong. Mm. And I think it's a diagnostic. And I often, Chris, believe it can go either way. You know, the person that's getting the feedback can be the diagnostician and come back and say, hey, Chris, I think you said X. Is this what you mean by that? That will work just as well as if the manager sorts it out. But we've got to become diagnostics, uh, diagnosticians to understand what's happening. If you're a manager and you're trying to give feedback, I would encourage you, go ahead with your gut, whatever that gut intuition is that you're not collaborative enough, but then give me an example because the behaviors will be buried in the example. So tell me about something I did in that last meeting and why you're coming to the conclusion that that wasn't collaborative. Mm -hmm. And then don't debate it with me, make me go away and think about it. Um, And that will move us to just the example will move us in a better place. It's really, really excellent advice. You know, I've preached that quite a bit to, to, to friends, to clients, you know, examples make it to reality. But I think sometimes the trick is, is you got to be careful that you then don't make it about the example, right? It's, it's really, it's about the behavior, the example, you know, they, they might, they might fight or argue the example, but bringing it back and saying, yeah, okay, I get it, but I could probably give you 20 more examples. Here's where the behavior is showing up. Let's talk about that. All right. If somebody is doing yes, but, as in yes, boss, but you don't know all the details that went behind that example. Yes, but that's not all that happened. That's a yes, but explanation. That Mm -hmm. is a defensive response. It means they haven't heard your message. So give another example or don't debate it. Just don't, it's not a debatable point. I'm expecting you as a boss to be more collaborative, period. Here's an example. Go think about it. Maybe you have three other better examples that you come back. We can talk about how, but you you get sucked into the debate. And after a while as a boss, you sort of start start going, I don't care. Um, I'm not going to give them that feedback anymore. And that's no good for anybody. No. No. Well, and there is a, you know, there is some of a, a give and take. I mean, you know, one of, one of the things you said earlier, and I think it, it leads to a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the potential solutions, you know, there's two sides, there's two sides to it. There's the effectiveness of the person giving the feedback. I think it's also important that the other person is up there asking and asking for what they want. That takes some bravery. I mean, we went back to the Asian example, and, and this is a culture that doesn't push back. But most of us here, we are willing to, and yet 
I, I think we too are afraid. I, I can think of when my, my son first went to work um, out of college, he went for, you know, went to a big organization and he asked for some pointers. And I said, you know what? I said, make sure that your boss is giving you regular, clear feedback. And if he isn't, go ask for it. And it was really funny because I think early on, you know, there wasn't that much, but, but then they, they got a good feedback system going and that clear feedback is there. And the particular boss does this, has time set aside every week for every person. I mean, it's really a pretty powerful thing. It's the way it should happen. Right. But, um, you know, I think, think we need to, we all as human beings need to be out there and asking for what we want and clearly communicating both ways. Sure. But we also ask for feedback in bad ways. Mm Mm-hmm. We say, tell me what I can do to improve. All right. So now if you're my manager, you're rushed. You haven't had time to think about it. You've got 15 things on your mind already. The easiest answer is going to be, you're doing great. Just keep doing it. Because that was an ambush question. Yeah. A non-ambushed question is, hey, boss, I've really been thinking about my executive presence and the ways in which I speak in meetings. And I think I could speak in a more powerful way. I need your perspective on that. And I need your advice on what you've seen. Now we're going to have a very different conversation, particularly if I tell you that last week, and then we're now talking about it this week. So you've had time to prep it. So you get better feedback because you ask better questions. Right. And then there's one more factor on this one. Everybody ignores. Um, It's a whole lot easier to give feedback if we have a good relationship. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier to take the feedback if I know you care. So sometimes what you got to do is work on the quality of the relationship in order to get the kind of feedback that you're looking for. Yeah. And that was one of the, one of the first points of your research was the quality of relationship wasn't there with, in in the case of research women, but other minorities as they could be um, with other groups. There often and still are outside the loop of the informal interactions that happen. Mm-hmm. So I often say to managers, I want you to know, track how you spend your informal, meaning unstructured time. Who are you with? Where are you? And is it equally available to everybody? Because what you find is a manager has, you know, an extra 15 minutes and they'll walk the floor or whatever equivalent exists in your world, whether that's walk the chat lines or whatever it is that you do. And there's a tendency to go to the same people and to carry on the chit chat conversations in those moments. But those are the places that build relationship. And if you're not doing it equally across the team, then you're saying one person is more valuable to me than another from a relationship point of view. And everything falls from that. So if the only way I can ever have a conversation with you, Chris, if you are my manager, is I have to schedule a meeting, we're going to constantly struggle for the relationship to be effective. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I, you know, one of my favorite um, authors, one of my favorite books is Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. Yeah. And she has a, you know, she talks about the seven principles of a fierce conversation. One in particular, which comes to play so often, I see, is be aware of your emotional wake. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, it's, it's not just in, in you know, I, I don't, again, not being a psychologist, I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, of course, but I think about the subconscious play of words and actions as much as the conscious play. And to your point, if you show 
more positive signs towards one person, it does have a psychological effect on everybody else around. I, yeah. I, I saw a great performer leave an organization. She shocked everybody. Everybody thought, and um, and I can remember I was I was talking to her boss, and she was telling me um, how shocked she was, and and I said, well, what was the feedback? And she said, she, the other woman, she said, I never felt like anybody cared about me. Mm-hmm. She's like, we all loved you. Well, nobody showed it. How did I? Yeah. Am I supposed to know that? Like by yeah. osmosis. <laughs> and, and this other person yeah. wasn't the kind of person that needed, you know, kind of any re- regular kind of pats on the back or anything. I mean, you know, it just, but, but people want to feel valued in their work. Sure they do. Sure they do. And add one more to this, Chris, if I'm different than everybody else by any quality of difference, I have that doubt in my head already Am I good here or is, am I, am I good enough? Or do you accept me or do you value me? It's already there. Yeah. So the need to reinforce that is even stronger. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. So we talked about feedback. We talked about authenticity. Um, you know, you talked a little bit in, about the research that, that um, in the case, again, of the research that women can get themselves isolated fairly quickly. And one of the, the suggestions you had was developing cohorts. We have to break here for a moment for, um, for a quick commercial. But when we come back, I want to actually dive a little bit more into that and some of the work that you're doing to help people um, kind of break through and get to where they need to be. So everybody stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Dr. Wanda Wallace. So Wanda, just before the break, we we were starting to talk about um, people feeling isolated and ways to break through, and you had mentioned utilization of cohorts. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that. Okay. All right. When I'm sitting there as a unique individual, again, I don't care how you define uniqueness, but I'm sitting there as a unique individual. And I think nobody has the same experience or feelings that I do. 
Then I start to second guess everything that happens so that I'm just going to get less engaged. I'm going to get less committed. I'm going to get less vocal. I'm going to get less creative. And it's a downward spiral from there. So I need to not feel so isolated. And when, you know, things go wrong with everybody in organizational life, you don't get everything you want. When I feel isolated, I tend to feel like, well, it's because of who I am as opposed to because of the circumstances. So one of the powers is building a cohort group with people who are a lot like me, who've had similar experiences. And if it's a real cohort and I feel connected in some ways to those people, then I don't feel like any, and they're having the same experiences, by the way, they got the same negative reaction or lack of feedback. All of a sudden I'm going, oh, it's not me. It's the organization or it's the stage in the career or, or, or. And when I do that, then I'm going to pick myself up, like literally pick myself up and feel more confident to go and ask for or to take an action or to re-engage. So, you know, the Gallup survey in looking at engagement, one of their 12 questions is I have a best friend at work. Mm -hmm. In fact, it factors into one of the top four things to drive engagement is that social connectivity. So that's what we like to do. Okay. So I'll bring a group of women together, let's say 20, 25 women together, and I'm going to put them through some common experiences that force them to be more candid with each other, like processing a 360 degree feedback, for example, it's one of the techniques, but it doesn't matter. Something that forces them to be more open with each other than they would normally do in a day-to-day interaction. And yes, a couple of them will say, eh, I don't like these women's things. I don't understand why we have to be women's only. Ignore it and move on because I've never failed to achieve the power of people saying, ah, right. It's not about sitting around chatting about what it means to be a woman. It's a sitting around chatting about our experiences in this organization and what we do about it for our careers. And that is the antidote to the isolation. And now roll forward, if you do that well, and you keep those groups connected, roll forward two years and geez, I just got a promotion and I'm looking for great talent. And I remember that woman over there that I met in this particular program and I call her up and I say, could you come help me? Or would you like a job here? Or, hey, could we talk through this particular problem? It interfaces with your area. Suddenly we've got a different quality of network with an incredible amount of power in it. So to me, this feels like an incredibly powerful leadership tool, right? A, a way of getting there. If, you know, if we've got a listener right now who's, who's listening to this and thinking, wow, you know, I'd love to do it, but I don't know where to start. How do I do this? Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's a man in a leadership role and, and he, he does want to do this for, you know, the women in his company or minorities or, or whatever the group would be. How does one actually get it started in a way that doesn't, feel like there's almost a bias, you know, that they're being singled out or grouped or whatever. And um, what's the power of utilizing, let's say, an external facilitator versus an internal facilitator? Okay. So the secret sauce in this one is helping people break down the barriers between the cohort members quickly. And sometimes an internal can do that. And sometimes it requires an external to do that. You've got to look at your culture and say, what exercise is going to get them to break that down? 
Um, and, you know, we get, we kind of protect ourselves an awful lot. So we don't say what we're really struggling with. You got to get that on the table quickly. I will honestly tell you the fastest way is forcing a group to process 360 together mm-hmm. where they're not sharing their reports, but they're saying, here's what I got feedback on that I'm not doing so well. Just having that kind of candid conversation and realizing we're all in the same boat is really powerful tool to build. So internal or external, it depends upon what kind of experience you can craft to break down those barriers. Um, I've seen companies start in a very small way by getting a group of women together for a dinner to just trade career experiences. Um, I've seen it start with uh, more senior women getting together and talking about the junior talent in their organization and what are they going to do to boost that talent. I mean, in almost anything that builds genuine camaraderie mm-hmm. is going to get you moving in the right direction. Excellent. Um, so as I think about this and the work that you've been doing, so do you still, you still teach, right? Yes. You still teach. I mean, and you do some consulting, you get brought in on these big projects. I mean, there's a lot going on. And so we spent a lot of time talking about just the general atmosphere and some of the work that you've done, but I, I'd like maybe a little bit more clarity on, you know, your work itself. And, you know, I'm, I'm aware of it because we've had conversations, but I'd love you to share with our, our audience your purpose, because one of the things we've talked about in the past is the power of purpose and have, how having a purpose can really move you forward. Mm-hmm. Well, a few years ago, I was not very um, enthusiastic about this whole purpose movement that is going on, but I decided that the entire younger generation was, and therefore to stay relevant, I had to take a deep dive. So I went to take a deep dive, a little bit kicking on string, but I did. And the net result is I discovered it's Aaron Hurst's work that really helped me figure this one out, what it is that my purpose is. And so I discovered that my mission is really about changing the world, that ultimately that is what I really care about, but that I realize I'm not going to change the world by changing the systems. I'm going to change the world by changing one person at a time. And so I often joke, my mission is to change the world one person at a time. For me, though, that translates by changing the quality of the conversations. If I can take conversations inside an organization and change the outcome or the quality of that conversation, the ripple effects are massive. Yes, they are. So, cause I believe everything that happens in organizations happens in a conversation, one form or another. So we want to change the quality of those conversations. That's what my mission is about. And one conversation at a time. That's right. Yeah. You know, that, that ripple effect is, is really powerful as well because you know, if you just have a positive effect on one person, that's going to expand tenfold. Right. I guess negative well, could as well, but but it, it, there's so much mean, power in this. Yeah. If I can get even a young manager to have a different experience, they will forever use that experience as they lead larger and larger groups. Now, suddenly, I've got a whole swath of an organization that's having a different experience and leading the different examples that's, I think that's pretty powerful. Yes, it is. And, you know, I love the way that you have leveraged this into the profession and, and furthermore, you've, you've leveraged this into your own radio show, um, you know, over the past you know period of time. And yeah. um, the show is out of the comfort zone. 
and I love the concept of it. I would would you just share with with our listeners a little bit about what you're what you're talking there, and maybe some of the best lessons you've learned from from some of your your guests. Oh my, the lessons are go for pages and pages and pages and pages. Fabulous guests. Out of the comfort zone is really about my book, which is called "You Can't Know It All," um, and it's the notion that one of the things that I watch women tech executives, engineers, salespeople do is they become an expert in something and then they stick to their knitting and they let that expertise drive their credibility, their reputation and everything. And they don't want to take jobs that are outside that zone of expertise because it's uncomfortable. I have to reestablish my credibility. I have to lead without knowing all the answers. I don't know what my value is at the end of the day. So the out of the comfort zone is to move out of what you're already good at doing and knowing into a place where you don't know and learn to lead there. And that is what becomes a career maker. If you don't do that, you're going to find it very difficult to take on larger and larger roles. It's not about deserving it. It's about whether we see you as somebody who can step out of the comfort zone and still succeed. And so that's what the book is, or what the radio show is about is ways in which you step outside the comfort zone, whether that's thinking strategically or thinking about disruptions or changing the culture or driving change processes or learning how to influence others or how do I become better sales pitch or social media or Anything that's out of the comfort zone we take on um, just to show people is possible. Do you have a favorite story? From radio show? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have a thousand favorite stories. Let me see if I can think of a most recent one. I know, because I've got you know, a few I, that stick I'm going to do one because it's still sitting in my mind. Um, it's a very recent show with Stephen Covey. Mm-hmm. Who's uh, the big uh, Stephen Covey Jr. I should say he's not yeah. go, doesn't go by Jr. But Stephen M. R. Covey, and his book is about trust and aspire. Okay, and Stephen has been about trust for eons. Talking with Stephen, and he wants to replace command and control. And I sort of think, yeah, yeah, yeah. We all know command and control is no good. But talking to Stephen, I come to realize that no, we do still believe in control. But as Stephen says, we believe in enlightened control. It's still control, but I'm going to layer emotional intelligence on top of it. Still control. Mm -hmm. If you think about what 95% of the time we're doing as leaders, it is ultimately about controlling. Controlling outcome, controlling behavior, controlling results, controlling errors, controlling risk, controlling. It's controlling. Where's the inspiration in that? And that's the question Stephen poses. Where's the inspiration? And I, I sort of I bought into the trust and inspire, but I just hadn't stopped to realize how baked into everything we do control is. Even if you look at our performance evaluation systems. So most companies are going to use a force distribution. That says some of you are good, some of you are not good. I'm controlling quality. It's about control even there. Yeah, we we like control, don't we? I mean, it, it just people don't like to give it up because what does what does giving up control require? What might go wrong is yeah. like, oh my god, and and it's all for good reason, but it's, whew, but it requires trust. You can't give up control if you can't trust. You, you, and and therein lies the key. And and it's funny because I think about all the shows that that, that 
that I've done. And it's amazing how often trust is the bottom line, right? If you really think about it, the, this concept of trust, um, a common theme is, is hard work, a willingness to work with others, you know, relationships. I mean, this, this stuff is common for a reason. And yet it's all the stuff that I just see so many struggle Sometimes. with. I agree. I agree. But Chris, we also don't stop to talk about what does it mean to trust? What does it mean I'm doing to trust? Yeah. So we say trust, like we say collaboration, like we say give feedback, but we don't break down what's going wrong and therefore where's my correction point? What do I do as a result? Well, and, and what is um, trust anyway too, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, it gets trust clear. is a judgment. Trust is a I judgment. Believe. Yes. I make a judgment that I'm going to trust you to some degree or another degree. It's a judgment. It's an opinion. It's not based in fact at all. It's opinion. It is opinion. Uh, no truer words have been said. Okay, uh, let's see. We got a couple minutes left. So, um, you know, here, here's a question for you. So, what makes you unique, and what makes your work unique? Okay, I think one thing makes my work unique, and one thing drives that. So, I think the thing that makes my work unique is this crazy ability to synthesize. So, I look across a whole swath of books. Um, articles, people I encounter, leaders, podcast guests, I mean, dozens, instead of try to distill down what's the essence of what they were saying into a couple of sentences. And then I string those all together. So insatiable curiosity and this wacky belief that I can synthesize it. Excellent. One last question for you before uh -huh. we start to go to wrapping the show. If there's one bit of core advice that you would give any of our leaders when it comes to running their business, anything, it's totally open. What's the advice that you would give them that they should take action on? Um, I'm going to come back to what we were talking about. The one piece of advice for everybody across the board, the world of work we know is changing. It is less hierarchical. Yes. It is more collaborative. Yes. Um, but it's more project driven than ever before. And I think that we cannot ignore the necessity of continued greater levels of project like work. That means that influence is going to be one of the number one skills to succeed. And that is not the kind of influence where you have to do what I told you to do because I have higher authority. It's going to be the influence where I'm persuading peers of my idea versus some other idea. And that level of selling my idea, selling myself, my brand, my reputation, and the how do I influence other people, I think are the career makers of the future. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're, we're kind of to the end of our show. So I, I've so enjoyed having you on. Uh, if our listeners, well, first of all, the book is You Can't Know It All. Yes. Available on Amazon. And probably, anywhere you want to go. Anywhere you want to go. Is there an audio book? There is an audio book, yes. Excellent. So so lots of ways to, to get a hold of that. Also, what's the best way if somebody wants to track you down? Um, what's the best way for somebody to find you? Um, Wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com or check out our website, leadership-forum.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being with us today. It's a pleasure, Chris. Always fun talking to you. Yes, ma'am. So everyone, another, another great show today. Um, appreciate everybody listening and we've got more great guests coming up. So stay tuned and thanks for being with us. 
Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.